You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Well, when it comes to your life, a lot of who you become is contingent on two things, the family you grew up in and how you respond to it. You can grow up in a great family and perhaps not benefit from it if you respond in rebellion or benefit from it if you are teachable and humble and receive the instruction. You can grow up in a bad family and continue that legacy, or you can break that legacy and use it as a negative example in a way in which you want things to be different. And so as we look today at this issue of family on this being Mother's Day, I wanted to look at Jesus' family. And Jesus is the most significant, preeminent person who lived in the history of the world. And we know quite a bit about Jesus. And sometimes what's overlooked is his family. What was his immediate and extended family like? And that's what we'll explore together today. For starters, his family did not have a lot of resources. They were a poor family. His parents were probably teenagers. They grew up in a small rural town. They were likely working class peasants. They don't have a lot of money, riches, or resources. They did, however, have a lot of obstacles to overcome. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, but people didn't believe that. So her reputation was really damaged and decimated and destroyed by a lot of lies and innuendos and false rumors. And and people said horrible things about his mother, that she had been unfaithful to his father and that his paternity was a mystery. Uh, Joseph, his adoptive father, was one who had to sort of deal with local religious church town gossip and scorn. Uh, They said basically that he was a foolish man to believe that Mary had been faithful to him and that he was raising a son who was not his own and he he should not do so. So the parents had bad reputation. They didn't have a lot of riches or resources. They didn't get a lot of support or encouragement. And to make matters worse, when Jesus was little, a decree was sent forth to murder sons in households. So to spare his own life, they had to move to another country. How many of you moved here from another city? Many of you are new to the valley, fastest growing city, fastest growing county in America. We moved here, it'll be three years ago in July. It's one thing to move from one city to another. I can't even fathom the difficulty if you are in poverty of moving from one country to another. And so Jesus spent some of his upbringing in the nation of Egypt. All of that to say they had a lot of obstacles to overcome and not a lot of resources at their disposal. Nonetheless, this is the most significant family that brought forth the most significant person in the history of the world. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Jesus' family and see what principles we can pull from their example. Some of you will have heard pieces of this sermon if you've been at the Trinity Church. Um, It culminates in chapter 2 of a book I'm releasing in October. And it's my way of bringing together a lot of biblical study around Jesus' family. Let's start with Jesus' extended family, his aunt and his uncle. What were they like? Um, They were older, and we read in Luke 1, 5, and 7, there was a priest named Zachariah. When you think of priest, think of pastor. This was the old covenant equivalent of the church. 
He was a rural pastor. Think small town, rural pastor, small congregation, simple, humble life, not tremendous obscurity, fame or notoriety, just a faithful guy along with his wife, loving and serving in a small local church. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. The way that ministry was done in the old covenant, it was through family line, through the family line of Aaron, Moses' brother in the Old Testament. And so what would happen is mom and dad would lead a ministry, so they would have a family, and then they'd have basically a church family. And as you got older, your family would take care of you, just like you took care of them when they were little, and then you would hand off the ministry to the next generation of the family. And in this way, the family and the church family were basically extended family. Well, this meant that you really wanted to have children because when you grew older, who was going to take care of you? And as you grew older, who would be your successor for the ministry? So this has a lot of professional and practical implications. And her name is Elizabeth. That's Jesus' aunt. And so she comes from a ministry family, as my wife Grace did. Zachariah comes from a ministry family, and they do ministry together. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is high praise. This is an amazing statement. These are very devout and godly, devoted, faithful people. But here is their pain point. And even if you love and serve the Lord in life, there will always be a pain point. Nothing is perfect. As a result, life always has some pain. Here is their pain. They had no, had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So practically, personally, if you have no child, as you grow older, there is no safety net of social security or services. Who's going to take care of you? Professionally, you're loving and serving your local church and ministry. Who do you hand off that responsibility to? And in that day, many would have likely considered Elizabeth cursed of God. Because God can open and close the womb if her womb is closed. Maybe she's an ungodly woman. Maybe there's secret sin. Maybe her and her husband aren't as devout as everyone seems to think they are. This could lead to a lot of devastating gossip and false allegations. She wants to be a mother. And at this point, she has lost all hope because not only is she a barren, she's older. She's older. She is beyond childbearing years. So that dream, that hope, that aspiration has now been buried. It is dead. And both were advanced in years. Now we read the story similarly in the Old Testament. There's another family. It is Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Their story is somewhat similar. They really want a child, but they are older, barren, and cannot have a child. So they, actually, Sarah does, if you can believe this. She comes up with a story, goes to her husband and says, I have an idea. Why don't you get a girlfriend and then she can have a baby? Now, Abraham says, well, that's a good idea. Um, And they find a gal and they have a baby. And as a result, God eventually provides for them a biological child. Now there are two mamas and now you got a lot of baby mama drama and it still happens to the whole Middle Eastern conflict today is because one guy, two ladies, that's too many. Okay. So 
what happened is they didn't trust the Lord to fulfill his promise. What we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth, they don't respond in an ungodly way, but in a godly way. They say, well, if the Lord will provide, then we will accept. And if the Lord will not provide, we are not going to literally take matters into our own hands. So they choose to obey the Lord, even though it is painful for them. These are godly people devoting their life to ministry. Here's what we read as well. God does open Elizabeth's womb. God does do the supernatural and give to them a child. While she is pregnant, Luke 1, 41 and 42, uh, Jesus' aunt Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You're gonna see over and over and over that part of the key of Jesus' family was being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, being filled with the Holy Spirit. She is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the person of God, the presence of God, the power of God. There is one God, three persons. We're called the Trinity Church for a reason. God the Father is in heaven. God the Son at this point is in the belly of Mary, his mother on the earth. And there is God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth. She lives in God's presence. She lives by God's power. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. She's going to pronounce a blessing over Mary. So what you have here is the older Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin. You have Jesus in the womb of his mother, Mary, and Mary is younger. And it would have been typical in that culture for the younger woman to pronounce blessing over the older, but because she is carrying the Lord Jesus, it is Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit pronounces blessing over Mary. And then we also read this, uh, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She believes that Jesus is coming to be the savior of the world, even though he has not yet been born. He is alive in Mary's tummy. We also read this about Jesus' uncle, Zechariah. He also was filled, Luke 1, with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He speaks forth truth on behalf of God. Here's what we see. Jesus' aunt and uncle, devoted to the Lord, faithful to each other, godly couple, They don't have riches or resources, but they have the most significant and most underutilized power source in all of human history, the Holy Spirit. Let me say this to you. There is is no source of life and power that is neglected as much as the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right, we tend to think if I just had more education, if I had more power, if I had more money, and God says, if you had more of my presence, that would supersede all other resources. They don't have money. They don't have wealth. They don't have resources. They're not in a central geographical location. They don't hold a political office. That being said, they are going to give birth to Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer. So we'll look at him next. Jesus' cousin, John. So the angel Gabriel shows up to reveal to them that they are going to give birth to John. He was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come forth leading the way for the coming of Jesus. The angel Gabriel says, he, John, will be great before the Lord. There was a ruler in that day called Herod the Great, and God says, he's not great. John will be great. My servants are the great ones. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This echoes, I think it's Ephesians 5, 18, where it says, don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. What happens is we drink to forget our troubles. And instead of being filled with spirits, we should be filled with the Spirit to overcome our problems. 
And what happens is we either look back at the past and we become very discouraged, so we drink to forget, or we look to the future, we become very fearful, and we drink to avoid, and those are sinful responses to life's conditions. Instead, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can learn for the past, and then we can proceed with the future. Not all alcohol consumption is a sin. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at Cana of Galilee. But there is a command on the life of John that he is not to drink. Some of you understand this. It's not a sin to drink, but for you, it is something that God forbids of you. Because you used to have a problem with alcohol, or maybe it runs in your family line, or maybe it is a matter of conscience. And I would submit this to you as well. True or false, John the baptizer was a pretty intense personality. He was, right? Now, he didn't go to Bible college or seminary. He grew up in the woods, raised by his parents. I mean, he's basically Jedi 1.0. He lives in the woods. He is raised in the force. He has a, uh, a Jedi robe. What's his diet? Bugs and honey. Bugs and honey. And he comes forth preaching repentance. He is intense. This guy with a few drinks might have been a bit much. And so God, right? Some of you are like that. Some of you, you, you should drink decaf coffee, avoid all alcohol, and go to bed at bedtime because you're too much, okay? John is a force of, he is a hurricane that looks like a man. That's John the baptizer. He is a force of personality. And so the command is given, no alcohol from him. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He is not yet born, but he is a person and he has a name and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the strongest argument that could potentially be made for human personhood and that life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. He is a person named John with a destiny and saved, chosen by his God from his mother's womb. That being said, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. So people are walking away from God when John preaches. People are gonna come back to God and he will go before him in the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the power, the ministry power that was available to the great Old Testament prophet Elijah is the same Holy Spirit presence and power at work in and through the life and ministry of his cousin, John. Now, what I want you to see about John is that he is filled with the spirit and has a calling of ministry on his life and prepares people for the coming of Jesus. You're going to see that, that not only does Jesus serve the Lord, but he enters into a family that was serving the Lord before he arrived. Let me show you how this works. In Jesus' family, Elizabeth, Zechariah, his aunt and uncle, they're older, they're doing ministry. They raise up a son named John the baptizer. Jesus says, of men born of women, none is greater than John. What he's saying is of all human beings that have lived in the history of the world, the greatest person in the history of the world, of course, after Jesus himself is John. Say, well, how did John get to be so great? He had spirit-filled parents and he was a spirit-filled man. And he picked up his parents' ministry. His parents had a ministry. He goes into ministry. His ministry explodes. Who does he hand his ministry to? Jesus. I need you to see that Jesus' ministry began with his aunt and uncle. It grew under his cousin 
And it was handed to him so that many, if not most of Jesus' early disciples and leaders actually came from John's ministry. Here's what I'm telling you. Apart from Jesus' family, he doesn't have a ministry. He doesn't have a ministry. And so we read this as well, Luke 166 about John, the hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of the Lord is the language in the Bible for the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit, right? It's Mother's Day. You're going to see before and after service, you're going to see little kids walking with mom, holding her hand. That means that they're in relationship and that she is leading and guiding and protecting and instructing. Well, the relationship that John the baptizer had with God since he was a little kid was that the hand of the Lord was with him, that he walked with God, that he was in relationship with God, that he was instructed, corrected, and directed by the presence of God in his life. Here's what I'm telling you. One of the most important things that we can do as parents is help our children have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest mistakes is we simply tell people, do what Jesus did, but we don't tell them how Jesus did it. Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor, Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52. How did Jesus grow in wisdom, stature, and favor? By the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus overcame temptation. How did he do it? By the power of the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did ministry. How did he do it? By the power, the presence, the person of the Holy Spirit. We can't just say, be like Jesus. Jesus went to the helper for his help and we need to go to the helper for our help. You're gonna learn this in a little bit when we get a little further into John's gospel. He calls the Holy Spirit, he, not it, because the Holy Spirit is God and personal, not an impersonal force, but a personal God. But Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is the helper. That means that you and I, we need help. When Jesus needed help, he went to the helper. When we need help, we need to go to the helper. You can't do what Jesus did. You can't live like Jesus lived unless you have the spirit like Jesus had the spirit and like John had the spirit. So let me, let me say this. Growing up, you want your kids to have a personal relationship with Jesus, amen? You also need them to have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that will make them like Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit will walk with them and remain with them and give them power and make them great. And he will fill them just like a sail is filled with a breeze. So the Holy Spirit can fill a life and direct them toward God's purposes and their destiny. And so as we see Jesus' family, God doesn't want us just to be amazed at this family. He wants us to experience the same kind of life-giving power that they enjoyed. Jesus' aunt and uncle, filled with the Holy Spirit, committed to the Lord doing ministry. They raise up John the baptizer, filled with the Holy Spirit, committed to the Lord doing ministry. What about Jesus' immediate family? We know a little bit more about his mother than we do his father, and she tends to get some rightful airtime around every Christmas season, Jesus' mother Mary. Luke one thirty-eight, an angel shows up, behold, and, and he tells Mary, you're going to fulfill the promise and the prophecy given 700 years prior in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will be with child. Right? She heard that as a kid and probably didn't understand all of it. Like, well, that's unusual. And then the angel shows up and said, Mary, that's you. You're the virgin gonna give birth to the savior. Now, ladies, think about this. How many of you would find that a little overwhelming? I mean, truthfully, right? I mean, at first, sometimes you think about it, you're like, it would have been awesome to be Jesus' mom. And you think, oh, maybe not, you know? First of all, like I'm raising God, which means if I do a bad job, I'm not sure what happens. I'm not sure what happens. That's a lot of pressure. 
In addition, imagine, you know, you're frustrated with your kid and you're like, Jesus, you frustrated me. Or Jesus would be like, well, I'm sure you're wrong. You know, I mean, it'd be it's like, put the spoon down, mom, or spank yourself. But, you know, it's, it's, it's for sure not me. You know, I mean, it'd be, it'd be hard to raise that kid, right? It'd be hard to raise that kid. Not only that, she is probably a teenager, right? How many of you, you've got a daughter, 13, 14, 15. You're like, I would not give her Jesus to raise. I, yeah, I won't let her have a puppy, right? Like I, I can't trust her with that much responsibility. Right? So this is a lot of responsibility on a little girl and, or a young woman. And let me ask you this, was this her vision for her life? No, no. She grows up in a small town. Her and Joseph grow up in a small town together. I've been there. And there's only one well, water source. It still flows. It's called Mary's Well. And the archaeologists and the geologists, they will tell you that in all likelihood, this was a town maybe of 100 people max. Because when all you've got is one small water source, you can't have a large population. So what this means is you grow up in a small town. You live in a small house about the size of a parking stall. You're poor, you're rural, and growing up, there's not a lot of people in your town. So pretty early, your parents are trying to help figure out who you're going to marry. Amen? And so growing up, you're like, Mary and Joseph, they kind of like each other. Mom and dad kind of got this all figured out, and this is the plan. So her thought is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry Joseph, and we're going to live in town, and we're going to have a simple family, and we're going to have kids. God shows up and says, actually, you're going to have a baby before you have a marriage. This is going to be a little controversial. And you're going to raise God to atone for the sins of the world. And people are going to say horrible things about you. How many of you young gals would be like, one, two, three, not it, right? I mean, it's like rock, paper, scissor, not the Virgin Mary, right? Like, I don't, I don't. Here's what Mary says. Behold, I, Mary, am the servant of the Lord. She says, you know, Lord, that's not my script, your script. So I'll just shred my script and I'll read your script because you're the Lord of my life and I will serve whatever you instructed me to do. She is a godly woman. I would say for all women, especially young women, Mary is an incredible example of faith. Um, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Gracie and I were talking about this right before we prayed and crashed last night. And in the Bible, there's this principle of sowing and reaping. And it really has tremendous implications on parenting. I was praying about it last night. I think I should do a, a parenting seminar on this in the fall. I probably will for the young families. But this role of sowing and reaping, when it comes to farming, you know, when you sow, you got to wait a while to reap. Amen. How many of you notice that with kids? You sow, you're like, I read the Bible. They're still evil. It didn't work. You're like, well, <laughs> give it some time, right? Give it some time. Um, what happens is when, when we're raising kids, it's sowing, 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 sowing. And oftentimes it's not till later that there's reaping, reaping, reaping. So, so what we see here is very early on. Mary is pregnant. Jesus is in her womb. What she says, I am the Lord's servant, thy will be done. Years later, her son in the garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he goes to the cross to forgive the sins of the world, he echoes his mom. 
He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Your will be done. There are times in his life that Jesus is echoing his mother because she sowed into him and it reaped later in life. And this is one of those occasions. Mary says as well, then she sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's filled with the spirit and she sings a worship song to God. Let me say this. God doesn't need your prayers and God doesn't need your worship. You do. People ask me this all the time. They're like, is God a big megalomaniac? Why does he need us all to talk to him and to worship him? He doesn't. He's fine. He was, befi- he was fine before we showed up. I'll just tell you that. He was doing fine. Worship is a form of prayer. Worship is a form of prayer. It's communicating with God. And what happens when we pray or worship, we are aligning our will with God's. Okay? Here, Mary is being told, you're gonna give birth to Jesus, the savior of the world. And what she says is, I need to talk to God about this so that my will and God's will can be aligned so that I share the will of God for my life. That's what prayer does. That's what worship does, right? When we pray, we're surrendering our will to God's will. When we worship, it is another way of praying and surrendering our will to God's will. This is a young woman, but she is incredibly mature for her age, okay? You can be old and foolish. You can be young and wise. Age and maturity are not necessarily corollary. She is young in years, but she is old in soul. She's very mature. And she worships to bring her will into alignment with God's will. So that's Jesus' mother Mary, godly, filled with the Holy Spirit, devoted to the Lord, servant of the Lord, Joseph's a father that we know far less about. How many of you, um, you guys, you, you do a lot, you don't say a lot. How many of you are married to that man? You're like, he is faithful, but he is not a talker. He's a doer, right? How many of you had a dad like that? Your dad would be like, I changed oil on your car and I put a, you know, new gutters on your house. So you know, I love you, okay? Because his love language is gutters and oil, right? That's his love language. He does stuff for you. Joseph is a guy who says very little, but does very much. And what happens for Joseph, so he's probably a teenage peasant guy, kid. The angel shows up and says, you're gonna marry Mary and she's gonna give birth to Jesus and he'll be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Angels often show up to Joseph. I don't know why, he just gets direct orders. Joseph, what? Did, he's a doer. Did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So he's the kind of guy, God says, do this. That's exactly what Joseph does. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and they called his name Jesus. So the angel says, Mary, Mary, do not consummate the covenant until after the birth of Jesus. And you need to love that woman. People are going to ruin your reputation, but If history does not vindicate you, eternity will. You need to know that, my friend. And furthermore, what happens then is Joseph stands as a bit of a hero for those of you who are adoptive parents and or foster parents. Is Jesus Christ his biological son? No. 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 I mean, technically, Mary is a single mother. She's pregnant, not yet married. Joseph marries her 
and he serves as the adoptive father of Jesus, he is raising a child that is not his biological. Now, I don't want to overstate it, but to some degree, you could even make the case that they are a bit of a blended family. Because does he also have children with Mary that are his biological children? Yes. So there is Jesus, who is not his biological child, though Jesus is Mary's biological child. And then Joseph and Mary have other children. And Joseph is a devoted, faithful father to all of these children. To those of you who adopt or serve in foster care, thank you. And Jesus grew up with a dad like that. Praise God that he did. And it says that they then uh, consummated their covenant and gave birth to Jesus. So what do we know about Joseph? He is a godly man. He is a faithful man. He is a hardworking man. He is an obedient man. And when told to do something by the Lord, he is a man of action and gets things done for God's glory and the good of his family. So here's what we've established so far. So aunt and uncle, godly, cousin, godly, mom and dad, godly, all servants of the Lord. What about the rest of Jesus' immediate family? I was told growing up Catholic, I have nothing negative to say against Catholic Church. I did not have a bad experience. But I was told growing up that Mary remained ever virgin, semper virgo, and that she and Joseph did not have any consummation of their covenant. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that after Jesus was born, they consummated their covenant, and then they went on to have other children, brothers and sisters of Jesus. Um, here is one example, Matthew 13, 55. They ask, is this not the carpenter's son? Uh, is not his mother called Mary? And here's what they're asking. Because Jesus is saying at this point, I am God, I am savior. And they're saying, really? We grew up with him. Here's the point. You can grow up with Jesus and as a result, become so familiar with him that you're no longer astonished by him. Some of you grew up with Jesus. You're like, I grew up in church. I heard about Jesus. I sang songs to Jesus. I went to camp. I went to Christian school. I've had a whole lifetime supply of Jesus and I am no longer amazed by him. Make sure that if you grow up with Jesus, that you don't become so familiar with Jesus that you're no longer amazed by Jesus. Okay? That's why some of you who are converted later in life, it's like the switch went from on to off. You're like, I didn't know anything about Jesus. And the more I learn, I'm totally astonished. And your Christian friends are like, I've known that since I was a kid. Right? These are not just facts to inform us. These are facts to transform us. And they, they cease being sort of amazed at how amazing Jesus is. And are not his brothers, they start naming them, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And that's not Judas Iscariot. That kid was bummed at his name, right? You're like, what's your name? Judas? Oh, I heard about a Jesus who hung out with Jesus. Yeah, I'm the other Judas. Not the, I'm the good Bin Laden. I do, I'm not that guy, right? I'm not that guy. So that's his brother. These are his brothers. How many of you would have liked to have been Jesus' brother? But it would have been tough, right? Right? You're having a conflict with Jesus. Mom walks in. What happened? Well, me and Jesus are fighting. Well, obviously it's not his fault, right? I mean, look at your bracelet. What, what would he do? You know, I mean, this is obviously your problem, kid, right? <laughs> they grow up as Jesus' brothers, share a bunk bed with him. But during his earthly life and ministry, they didn't believe in his deity until after he died and he rose. Once Jesus rises from death, his family starts to believe in him. Prior to that, they thought that he was crazy. It, on one occasion, they come to take him home. 
I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. And they're like, we got to go get him. He's not doing so good. After he rises from death, they're like, oh, would you look at that? He is God, okay? So in Acts 1.14, this is after Jesus dies for our sin, rises from the dead. The early Christians are gathered. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary. Who's a member of the first early church? Jesus' mother, Mary. She worships her own son as God. She was a sinner and she needed a savior. In her song in Luke, she says, the Lord is my savior. Only a sinner needs a savior. Mary knew that she was a sinner, a godly, amazing woman, but still a sinner and needed a savior. And here she is worshiping her Son, how many of you ladies are not ready to start a religion for your kid? All right. How many of you would be like, worship my kid, they are sinless. You're like, no, I got carpal tunnel whooping that kid. They are, they are not sinless. She knows that her son is sinless and he's also her savior. To me, this is a strong argument in the resurrection of Jesus because she's a godly devout woman and she would not just be worshiping her son unless she saw him risen from death. Furthermore, also part of the early church worshiping him, his brothers. How many of you would not join a religion devoted to your brother? Amen. You had that, you're like, my brother's name was Lucifer. And he unleashed hell on me. And yeah, my other brother, we had three boys, the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist. Those were... Those were my brothers, right? So what happens is after he rises from death, Jesus' own brothers say, you know what? Our brother is God. And they worship him as God. They serve him as God. And this is a devout Jewish family that knows if you worship the wrong God, you're committing blasphemy and you go to hell. Furthermore, they go on to be leaders in the early church. Galatians 2.19 speaks of James, the Lord's brother. Galatians 2.9, or Galatians 1.19, then Galatians 2.9, James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars. Pillars are substructures that hold up the superstructure, right? In your house, you've got load-bearing walls. The first thing you've got to learn when you're doing demo is which ones are load-bearing. You take those out, everything collapses. What it says is, in the early church, there were certain load-bearing pillars. Among those were Jesus' brothers. They literally held up Christianity. The early church, spiritually speaking. Not only that, Jesus' two brothers go on to write books of the Bible bearing their names, James and Jude. They devote themselves to serving their brother, Jesus, as their savior after he returned to heaven. And it says that in history that they came to kill uh, James, Jesus' brother, He would not deny that his brother was God. So they threw him off of the temple. Then they stoned or beat him to death. I mean, horrible way to die. And if his brother was not God, all he had to do was just deny it and he could be spared. But he would rather die than deny because he'd seen his brother risen from death. So death no longer had any fear over him. Okay. And history outside of the Bible says that then a leadership vacuum occurred when James was murdered. And one archaeologist says this, when James is murdered, it is Simon, also sometimes translated Simeon, who takes over leadership of the movement. That is one of Jesus' brothers. Now, if that is in fact the case, what you have is aunt and uncle, 
filled with the Spirit, loving and serving the Lord. Raise up a son, John the baptizer, filled with the Spirit, loving and serving the Lord. What you have is mom and dad filled with the Spirit, loving and serving the Lord. Raising up Jesus, who follows in the ministry of John, that takes over the ministry of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He is God, filled with the Spirit, and serving him are his siblings. Here's what I'm telling you. The best thing for your family is ministry. Finding a way to love and serve the Lord. And sometimes we look at Jesus' life, we're like, that's amazing, totally. And then we need to also look at his family and say, ah, it was his family that helped provide the launching pad that launched the ministry of Jesus. They did this together as a family. They did this together as a family. And so I want to pull from the example of Jesus' family uh, three lessons. First one, God was the gravitational center of the universe for Jesus' family. Family systems are like solar systems, right? Solar systems have a center that things orbit around. Family systems have a center that people orbit around. And let me say this, this is crucial because you can get everything else right. And if you get this wrong, everything goes wrong. Who or what is the gravitational center of your family unit? Think of growing up and present. In some family systems, it is the hobby, let's say, of the children. We're in Scottsdale, so we'll just proceed from preaching to meddling for a moment. You're welcome, okay? And so the way it works here is sometimes a child's hobby or sport or activity becomes the gravitational center. You know what I'm talking about? This could be golf, this could be tennis, this could be swimming, this could be baseball, this could be soccer, this could be anything. So my three sons are baseball players. So growing up, they had year-round training, they played on tournament club traveling teams, and there was always baseball, including on Sundays. And there was even tournaments scheduled on Mother's Day. And so what would happen is baseball season would come and certain families would literally stop being Christians during baseball season. We don't read the Bible, we don't pray, we don't go to church, we don't have relationship, why? Because for this season, our religion is baseball. It's the center of our life. We make massive sacrifices of our time and our money and our effort. I'm saying this, baseball's a great sport and it's a bad religion. Baseball's a great sport, but it's a bad God. It's a bad God. Because at some point the season's over and they still need to be Christian. Or at some point they hang up their spikes and their bat and their glove and they still need to be Christian. And this happens all the time. Some years ago I was pastoring, I talked to one family. They said, uh, well, goodbye. And I said, are you going? They said, well, it's, it's soccer season. We'll see you in six months. I was like, so, so you won't be Christians for six months. They said, well, we don't have time for church. We don't have time for Bible study. We don't have, we don't have time, it's soccer season. What that tells me is the gravitational center of the family universe is the hobby. It's the hobby. Sometimes the gravitational center of the universe is the family business. We're all in business together and all the relationships need to get sacrificed on the altar of family business. Sometimes the gravitational center of the family is the most domineering personality. Dad's grumpy like a grenade with a pin pulled. Everybody and everything orbits around him. He has two emotions. Furious and asleep. And so if he's awake, we all need to pay attention, right? Sometimes this is the, you know, the, the, 
the dramatic member of the family that always gets their way. Sometimes this is the demanding member of the family that has to get their way. Everything and everyone orbits around it. For Jesus' family, God was the gravitational center of the family. Elizabeth loved and served the Lord. Zechariah loved and served the Lord. John the baptizer loved and served the Lord. Mary loved and served the Lord. Joseph loved and served the Lord. Jesus is the Lord, but he loves and serves God the Father. That being said, the gravitational center for the family was relationship with the Lord. And let me say that as people in the family are getting closer to the Lord, they end up getting closer to one another. The key to being close is everyone getting closer to the Lord. And if he serves as the center, he allows forgiveness and reconciliation and he pulls the family unit together around him, not in spite of him, but around him. Does that make sense? Number two, each family member was filled with the Holy Spirit. We we looked at it. Zechariah, Elizabeth, aunt and uncle, John the baptizer, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, brothers, extended immediate family, all filled with the Holy Spirit. When it comes to parenting, you either believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit or you assign to yourself as a parent the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts, he controls, he instructs, he directs. Parents who don't know that, they try and do all of that and they wonder why it doesn't work. This can work when a child is little because when a child is little, they're trying to kill themselves. Okay, every small, especially a boy, every little boy is like, I wonder what the knife does. And if I hold it and jump off the bookshelf, I wonder what'll happen. Every, every boy is trying to kill himself. So when they're little, you've got to save them from themselves. And it's a lot of physical protection. But as the child gets older, they need to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that they can have self-control. Otherwise, the only way for them to be obedient is for the parent to control them. This is why some children, they are obedient until they leave home and then they're rebellious because the only control mechanism was the parent externally, not the spirit internally. One of the most important things that a parent can teach a child is, here's who the Holy Spirit is. He wants to indwell you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to renew your mind. He wants to change your desires. He wants to direct your life. He wants to unburden your hurts. He wants to help you to forgive your enemies. Do you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And if you want to have a great family, it requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be submitted and yielded and surrendered to. If you want to raise kids or grandkids, the goal is to have them have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Again, one thing that's very frustrating is sometimes people say like, well, just do what Jesus did. Here's the point. You can't unless you have his power. And his power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you can't just tell, it's like looking at somebody saying, well, just do what Michael Jordan did. I I have a two inch vertical. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. See, the Holy Spirit will bring to you the character of Jesus. It's called the fruit of the spirit in the Bible. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That parenting is really about the child loving Jesus, being filled with the spirit and manifesting the character of Christ. That's why we see in the family, Jesus' entire immediate and extended family, we see godliness because that's the fruit of the spirit at work in the life of each member of the family. So even as parents and grandparents, 
Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you in relation with the Holy Spirit? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you praying? Are you worshiping? Is your family an overflow of your membership in God's family? And then thirdly, each member of Jesus' family was a servant. Elizabeth, Zachariah, serving in ministry. Mom and dad, serving family, serving in ministry. Jesus' siblings, serving in ministry. Jesus, serving in ministry. Jesus' cousin, John, serving in ministry. They come to the Lord Jesus when he's an adult male and they ask him, what do we do to be the greatest? And what he doesn't do is rebuke them, he redirects them. He says, to be the greatest, you must be the servant of all. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. What tends to happen is we think I will raise great children if I just get them the best servants. If I get the best teacher, the best coach, the best tutor, get them into the best program, get the best instruction, then I'll raise a great child. I'm not against good input in your child, but if your child does not learn to serve, they will see themselves as the gravitational center of the universe. They will function as God and they will think that everyone and everything orbits around them to worship them, to serve them, to make their name great, to help them achieve their glory. That's where much parenting is idolatry. Your child does not exist so that God has someone to glorify. Your child exists to glorify God, okay? Child exists to glorify God. So that being said, one thing that is so important is as early as possible to get the child or children to understand, I need to serve. There are other people. I'm not the only person on the planet. I need to be considerate, compassionate, empathetic toward others. Jesus' whole family serves. Let me say this too. They serve their family and then they serve as a family. Sometimes religious parents will say, well, we don't serve our family, we serve ministry. No, no, no. You serve your family and together your family serves in ministry. That ministry begins at home, but it doesn't stay at home. So for you, I want you to think in these terms, what kind of family did you come from and what kind of legacy will you leave? Um, there are ungodly families who remain ungodly. You're like, man, that was bad. And then the next generation was bad. And the next generation, like there's no change or pivot. There are godly families who turn ungodly. These are tragic. You're like mom and dad love the Lord. And then they cheated on each other and declared war and set the house on fire. And golly. What happened? It didn't need to be like that. Uh, they knew the Bible. They had relationships with good people. They, God was willing to help them. They weren't willing to receive that help. Number three, there are ungodly families who turn godly. Some of you come from really ungodly families, but you've just decided, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That there's a new legacy. And this is one of the things that we say at the Trinity Church. We open our Bibles to love. Oh, excuse me, open our Bibles to learn. We open our lives to love so that lives and legacies are transformed. Not just you, but your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. It's, a fool thinks about a weekend. A wise person thinks about the fifth generation. There's a lot of foolishness in this world. And so you may say, I come from legacy lineage of ungodly, but by God's grace, I want there to be a pivot in our story, a pivot in our history it was ungodly, they met Jesus, they weren't perfect, but things went a different direction, okay? Some of you have inherited that, some of you are the first generation. And then there are godly families who remain godly. 
they love and serve the Lord generation after generation. Now, they're not perfect, but they're, they're godly. Which family is Jesus? It's number four. Godliness for generations. Okay? My hope, my prayer, my goal, my plea for you, because I love you, and I love people with your last name that haven't even been born yet. Three or four. If it was ungodly, it doesn't need to stay ungodly. And if it was godly, by God's grace, let's keep it godly. Amen? That being said, I'm going to bring up my best friend, Grace, since it's Mother's Day and do a brief interview with her. And um, if you don't know our story, we've got five kids, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20. We didn't have a chart. Just somebody showed up every other year with our last name. So we brought them home and we're very glad to have them. Thank you, Luke. Um, And uh, yeah, so I was going to ask you, honey, just maybe share a little bit about your family story. My family history was we were not godly and then now my family does know and love and serve the Lord. And so it's one of the great joys of my family. I think we were category three, went from ungodly uh, to by God's grace, increasingly more godly. Maybe share a little bit about your family and we'll jump in from there. Thank you for joining us on Mother's Day. (laughs) Grace was gone all week. Ashley, our oldest, had a little medical procedure, surgery. And so I can confirm that I would be a terrible mother. I, uh, I, was, I was home with the four kids all week and it, we made it, but uh, we didn't make it by much. It was a situation, I'm not gonna lie to you. So we're very, very glad to have you home. We're very glad to have you home. Be home. Um, I grew up in a pastor's home, um, youngest of three girls and um, aspiring godly family, I guess I would call it. <laughs> um, and I had some years in high school where I turned my back on the Lord. I still believed in God and knew the Bible was true, but I was being rebellious. And um, so those were painful years and hard years, but um, God drew me back to himself, thankfully, and um, met Mark, got married, worked in the business world for five years, um, and then started having kids. And I had always wanted to be a mom. Um, but really knew nothing about being a mom. I think when you're not a mom, you look at other people going, oh, I'm not going to do that. Oh, I'm going to do that. Oh, you know, and you think you go into motherhood knowing exactly all the things you're going to do to raise a perfect child. And, and that's not how it goes. So, um, I'm not up here because I was a perfect mom. In fact, I learned a lot of things by doing things wrong. I have five young witnesses here that (laughs) would attest to that. Um, But yeah, I think just it's been um, the hardest job in the world and the most fulfilling job in the world to see what God does um, in my kids' lives in spite of me. (laughs) So um, what would you say, advice to young gals or gals that are aspiring, aspiring to mother, maybe they're single, maybe they're newly married, don't have kids yet, they're not moms yet, but they're, they're wanting to be. They're, they're hoping and looking forward to that season. Yeah, I mean, I wish I spent a lot of time with babies because I love babies. But um, I wish I had sought more um, just wise counsel, hanging out with moms that I respected um, and just listening and watching. I think I could have gained a lot more from doing that. Um, reading books is fine, but I think for me it wasn't the best because then I felt guilty when those things didn't work for me and I felt like I was being a bad mom and it felt there was shame with that. And so for me that wasn't the best thing, but I think I'm more relational in that sense where I learn through other people. Um, so I wish I would have done that just to, to be encouraged and work through any fears of mothering and just to gain wisdom in general. 
And uh, one of the things we did before we had kids is we would babysit uh, as a newly married couple. And uh, we served in kids' ministry some. I would tell all you single people or young marrieds without kids, practice on other people's children before you get your own. <laughs> do some babysitting, serving kids' ministry, and you're like, oh, that was terrible. Write that down. We're not going to do that for our children. Um, what advice would you give to moms that have little kids? I remember our kids being two years apart when they were little. Those were busy, busy years. And you traveled a lot, so it was really hard. Yeah. Um, thankfully, we had both sets of grandparents that would trade off doing um, date night every other week, which is important to do when you're um, raising kids is keeping your marriage priority. Um, I think Galatians 6, uh, 9 and 10 comes to mind. Just uh, do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season you'll reap if you do not give up. (laughs) Um, Those are hard, hard years. They're very physically exhausting. Get your rest when you can. Your lists are unending. Um, It feels like you'll never get caught up, and guess what? You won't. (laughs) Um, So just replenish with the Lord. I wish I had spent more time. I I learned over the years how to pray and how to really... um, bow before the Lord in, in ways desperately, um, but learn how to pray through those seasons and replenish yourself in the word and through prayer and have other people praying for you. Ask for new strength every day to do what God has assigned to you and what God has blessed you with. Um, I just would keep doing. I was a doer and, and I wouldn't stop to rest and let the Lord um, give me strength for what was next. When you were talking to in the previous service, that God convicted you when you were feeding the children that you weren't getting time for him to feed you. Yeah, that was that was a time where I, I would be constantly thinking through what my next thing was instead of just sitting and I'm sitting here, I have to because I have to feed my child. So why don't I spend the time meditating on his word? You can listen on the Bible app to the Bible now. I didn't have that back then. Um, you can pray, you can listen, listen to the Lord in those times when you are forced to be quiet because those will really... Um, give you strength for doing the little mommy things. Yeah, I feel like, especially moms, so much energy is going out. If you're not getting time with the Lord, there's not life coming in. And then that delta becomes sort of exhaustion and burnout and frustration. And then the children will exploit that. Uh, they, will, they will see that as a weakness. And because they don't have a new nature yet, they will, they will proceed forward boldly. And... Um, <laughs> And that's where, you know, getting the energy from the Lord, because God is a parent and you're his kid. And before you can parent kids, you got to get time to be parented. And and even in the adult years, what advice would you give for moms of teens and 20 somethings, kind of that pre-launch launch launch phase where we are, Zach's graduating in a couple weeks off to college, Ashley's nearly approaching her master's degree work. The majority of our kids have a driver's license. Uh, which is, that's faith right there. It's faith to raise teenagers. It's faith to give them a driver's license. What advice would you give for moms that are in kind of that season where the kids are a little older? Yeah, I think for me, I didn't, with my oldest kids, I didn't build that relationship early on. I was more of a disciplinarian and wanted my kids to obey. And so, though your name is Grace. I know. They would have picked picked me as the the law. No, you're the fun one. (laughs) And I was resentful of that for a long time. Oh, my gosh. That just happened. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. But it 
was good because you created balance and the kids could see that life was fun. Um. (laughs) And because of you, they went to bed and ate food and... Yeah, so that's good. We worked well together. Yeah, yeah. We were both needed. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, now I'm trying to play catch up on some of that with my older kids, but I think that relationship building all through their, all through your parenting, but especially in those teenage years is so essential because you want to be that safe place that they come to. They're going to talk to somebody about their issues and pray that you're the one and not the teenagers that have horrible advice on Facebook and beyond, um, and put people in their life that they trust, that you trust, that they feel comfortable talking to as well. But I think for me, just learning to really sit and listen well in those years, there's a lot of details and a lot of stories that go on and a lot of talking. And, and if you really listen, they will share their heart and, and you can pick up things and, and, see how to train them in relationships and see where their pain is, see what they enjoy. There's a lot of, it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of emotional output. But if you really are attentive to it, there's so much you can learn about them in those years. And I think, you know, I'm still learning how to do that um, with all my kids, but it really pays off. You start to see the fruit of all your hard work of discipline in the little years because then you get to enjoy them in a different way and have a relationship with them. Do you, uh, ask you a dangerous question, and we may or may not edit it out. Um, <laughs> do you enjoy the children? Yes, very much. Yeah, I love them and enjoy them. Yeah, I, and that's for us, our, our hope and our prayer and our goal for the families would be, not that you just love your kids as a group, but you like and enjoy each of them individually, and making memories and doing life and seeing them become the person that God destined for them. And so... I just want to publicly honor and thank you for being a great mom and having a mother's heart for the church family and being devoted to helping raise uh, really wonderful kids that I have the pleasure of being a dad to and enjoying and making memories with. And um, yeah, our family is better because of you and our church family is better because of you. And so I wanted to just thank you and honor you today and and honor the other uh, mothers and grandmothers as well. And uh, in a moment, we'll, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, In a moment, we're going to take communion, remembering the fact that Jesus came to forgive. And some of you will hear some things today and say, I feel feel guiltier. Well, then you need forgiveness, and Jesus does forgive. And, And some of you would wonder, well, how do I make a change in my family? Well, you need to be part of God's family. And Jesus makes that possible by taking away our sin and reconciling us to God as Father and bringing us into God's family. And so, as God's family... We're going to take communion, remembering that Jesus takes away sin and he gives forgiveness and he gives membership into the family of God. And I'll invite the band forward at this time and we're going to sing. And singing is a form of praying. And like I said with Mary, it's a way that we come into alignment with God's will and we surrender to God's will. And uh, yeah, we love you and thank you for being our church family. And I'll just ask you, honey, if you close our time and transition us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be a mom and for those in the room that have had that opportunity, whether it's a spiritual mom or biological mom. Lord, I just pray that you'd continue to give each of us strength and wisdom um, and in the blessings that you've given us to raise our children well, to love you, to serve you, um, to walk with you, to enjoy you, Lord, as their father. Um, thank you for the opportunities, and I pray that you would just continue to equip us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, baby.